came and as I spoke, he came tiptoeing through the door. Steve Vines, very good morning to you. How are you? I, 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 I'm good. Where did you leave the huskies? Look at the size of this coat. My goodness, it's not that cold out there. <laughs> well, normally when Phil's here, he insists on wing collar and, and dress suits for these morning oh, brews. I see. Yeah, I see. And, you know, I, I rebel sometimes and wear a black tie instead of a white one. But, you know, that's the rebel in me. Well, it's better than Phil's frock anyway. Now, uh, <laughs> we've got an email here from uh, Tom in Wanchai, which I thought we'd just kick off with, if that's Let's all right with you. Uh, he says, or rather asks, who is Robert Chow? Should he surrender and be prosecuted for leading demonstrators disturbing the peace, proposing dictatorship and instigating violence in Hong Kong against the Hong Kong public protesting against injustice? Going on to say that what a mockery for him to kiss the shoes of the police and make the ridiculous claim that they protected the public, Tom says, terrorised them more like. Going on to say that talking of violence, if Carrie Lam had learned me mediation or counselling skills, well, as Director of Social Welfare, she might not have been so ignorant of the likelihood of police violence. She might have been able to build a positive relationship with the protesting public. The school marmish tone just irritated. A government's intransigence in refusing dialogue is also typical of naivety and leadership, a civil service mentality and inability to think outside the box. Finally, from Tommy says, it is sickening to see the level to which the formerly Blended governance of Hong Kong has sunk. Well, gosh, there's a lot in there. Uh, sh shall we start with um, who is Robert Chan? Why hasn't he surrendered? Okay, <laughs> <laughs> he, of course, is is from a very noble background as a as a broadcaster and a protester. Uh, protester I shouldn't say that, should I? <laughs> he's uh, um, uh, indeed he's a newspaper publisher, but um, he has been leading this outfit called Love Something Else and Something Else Hong Kong. But but let's. Uh, do away with the niceties. It's basically anti-occupy, mm. uh, do as you're told campaign, uh, which has been. I mean, he's a person of considerable skills and talent, and he's mobilised a hell of a lot of support for this. And yesterday, this is what Tom's talking about. He, he got some of his supporters to stand outside the police station and say, "Well done, boys. You're our absolute heroes." But he actually has a point because if you're going to say that the organisers of the Occupy movement are responsible for inciting violence. You've also got to say that the organisers of the anti-democrat movement mm. are responsible for mobilising triads and other thugs, particularly in Hong Kong. Well, you've got to remember, of course, Robert Chow was behind that uh, farcical, uh, terrifying video that was doing the rounds. Do you <laughs> well, the one that they had to withdraw. <laughs> yes. Yes, that was the one of Hong Kong collapsing under mm. the weight of... Um, um, oh, that's right, Hong Kong people. Gosh, yeah. I really think that we have to do something about getting the Hong Kong people out of Hong Kong. They're an absolute disgrace, all of them. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, it, it, is a, it is actually a fair point, and I, I don't believe that before I've heard Tom raise it, I've, I've heard anybody else raise it. Mm. If you are part of a movement that has been mobilising thugs, are you in any way culpable for their actions? Actually, in law, you are. And they're saying about the leaders of the Occupy movement who, who turned themselves into the police yesterday. In fact, it turned out something like 60 people yeah, went along right. and did that. That they may well be charged not only with um, unlawful assembly, which is what they've admitted to. They haven't admitted to anything further than that. But they may well be charged with organising unlawful actions and coordinating them. Because in theory, at least they stand accused of being responsible for, for any further un, 
illegal actions that took place as the organisers of this movement. Well, we'll see what happens with all of that. Mm. But the fact of the matter is, for all these people who've been whining and bellyaching about how Occupy doesn't respect rule of law, they have ultimately demonstrated their respect for the rule of law by saying, we put our hands up. We knew this was an unlawful assembly, and we are prepared to take the consequences. That actually is called rule of law. Let's you may not like it, but that's called rule of law. Let's just go back to some of the evidence, or so-called evidence. You've got videos, you've had just millions of photographs of all sorts of going-ons, and people being involved claimed yeah. that they were of triad uh, <coughs> uh, background and so on and so forth. We've seen uh, some senior policemen, for example, there was the passerby in a scarf who was clonked on the shoulder with the, with the baton. The police has apparently, the policeman in question has apparently since retired Tired, so therefore uh, there will uh, be. Instead, he was a very senior officer. That's right, and yeah. uh, so therefore there will be no uh, inquiry because no, no he's gone. That. So, do you, how do you see this panning out? Then? Well, I mean, this is this is very interesting. There is supposed to be, and gosh knows, um, it's a body we're, we're not only toothless but willfully blind, called the Independent Police Complaints Council, mm. and they their view in, of of all these protests, which has been what, the biggest civil disturbance in Hong Kong since the 1960s is, oh, um, gosh, there may be some complaints. Well, they're right about that. Uh, we don't want to send any of the members of the council along to where all this is happening in case they get prejudice. Well, normally what this is called, if you're, if you're a watchdog, is it's called collecting evidence. They don't seem to want to collect any evidence. Their view is that if anybody complains, and in fact they've got a pretty unbroken track record for this, if anybody complains, they will very reluctantly receive their complaint. And I think in about 3% of cases they will uphold it as something for, for the police to act on. So um, can I use the word not rigorous in their application of their responsibility as a watchdog? You may say, well, that's because... Um, uh, ninety-seven percent of uh, of the complaints are completely without. Oh well, actually, it must be more than ninety-seven percent because a lot of the complaints they don't even investigate. So I'm only talking about three percent of those they've chosen to investigate. Well, I remember a few so, weeks uh, back. Just, just, sorry. So you may mm. argue, oh, well, mm. that's because the Hong Kong police are so perfect mm. that that you know really there's no more than, than this tiny little trickle of people who may feel justifiably aggrieved by uh, police action. Well, in fact, it, the numbers were sprung, weren't they, about two weeks ago. They said of the, all these hundreds of complaints, uh, I think, as you mentioned, a very small percentage was upheld. But I don't recall anybody being actually disciplined over well, any of this. Well, you see, the whole point about this, um, I mean, not only are they reluctant to, to carry out their watchdog responsibilities, but the, the council in itself has no power. All they can do is refer their findings, particularly if their findings are fought, back to the police force to take action. So you're never quite sure in those tiny little percentage of cases where they've decided there may be cause for action, whether anything has, has, has been done. I mean, I think, to be fair to the police, if something is referred back to them, they do indeed investigate it. What is not clear mm. is of that tiny percentage, how many are then result in, in, in some sort of disciplinary action. Or indeed, I mean, you know, if, if a policeman is involved in criminal action, he's a criminal or she's a criminal, the same as any other citizen is.
Anybody wants to get involved in this uh, little discussion, by the way, we've had an email from Tom. Maybe you'd like to stick your two penneth in. It's radiopete at gmail.com is uh, the quickest way to uh, get involved. Uh, Steve, you mentioned earlier on about them surrendering to the police, uh, but they're not surrendering against an arrest warrant, are they? No, I mean, this is why I'm saying that, that they are truly upholding the spirit of the law. They haven't said... Well, you know, we'll we'll wait until somebody, i.e. the police, come forward and issues an arrest warrant. They're saying, look, we understand what the law is. Mm. Um, and we proactively will, um, will uh, play our role in implementation of the law. So uh, I'm not sure whether surrender is the correct terminology. Mm. That's the terminology... That's what I was getting at. Yeah. yeah, that's the terminology they use. I mean, as you say, normally... Um, an arrest warrant is issued and and chap A has to go along and say, all right, copper, you, well, you, I, I, I'm up for it. Uh, something that I'm surprised <coughs> didn't get uh, picked on regarding this so-called surrender, I mean, what would have happened if the entire uh, Occupy movement all turned up at all the different police stations in order to surrender? I, I mean, think, that would have been I pretty think massive. indeed that was something that Occupy had in mind. Mm. Now, remember, uh, uh, remember, I mean, everybody listening to this knows this, Occupy is no longer in control of these protests and, and hasn't been, frankly, since day one. But actually, I think that was exactly what they had in mind. And it is part of the spirit of civil disobedience, is that if you break the law, you accept the consequences, and you make it difficult for the system to cope That's right. with the consequences. Exactly. And what is now going to be very, very interesting is what charges the um, Department of Justice and the police concoct if they really decide to throw the book at these people, which is entirely possible. Mm. And if they maintain that this is part of an objective and purely unpolitical process, I will watch all the pigs flying up in the sky and say, gosh, that's a remarkable achievement of pig flying. That's almost a double entendre, but anyway... Uh... <laughs> yes. That's, that's uh, an image I'm just not quite sure I've understood, but it won't stop me. Let's go back to, to Tom's email. He mentioned Carrie Lam and mediation. Well, look, here's the thing. Here's the thing. The government is now saying to the students you know, go home, be reasonable, nothing can be done. And, for example, the hunger strike that's now underway, mm. which started with three students led by Joshua Wong, I gather there's now others involved, um, do you know what they're asking for? They're not asking for the implementation of universal suffrage or anything really fancy. They just want to talk to they the government. They just want to talk to the government. That's right. And see why I learn who uh, um, <laughs> remarkably has managed to scrape his popularity right off the bottom of the pile in recent weeks, has said, well, that's an impossible demand. Well, why is it impossible? He's the head of the government. Yeah, right. He could make it possible. Well, I mean, it could have been done it? ages ago, couldn't it, really? Well, they had... Well, they did I mean, Carrie do, did do a little walkabout. No, fact. no, no, and they did... Well, no, I think the problem is that they did have these talks with the students, which were televised. Yes, but they and didn't the problem was go that, any that, further than that, did Well, they? no, I think the problem from the government was that, that, that they looked weak and the students looked strong. <laughs> exactly. And they didn't like the idea of, yet again, being seen in public, demolished by 18, 19 and 23-year-olds. <laughs> I mean, that wasn't what... That wasn't what they had in mind at all. Mm. So, I mean, they are saying, you know, be reasonable, let's talk about this. And so the students say, yes, please, let's talk about this. Says, That's impossible. We can't do that. Well, I mean, you know, sort out your story, chaps. I mean, either you want people to be reasonable and talk this through, 
or you say, well, actually, we, you can have any discussions you like, but not with us because we're not going to talk to you. I mean, one of those cannot possibly compatibly be compatible with the other. Well, of course, as we've seen over this past uh, couple of months, you know, nothing has really changed the government's stance, i.e. they're not saying anything at all. Do you think that this is going to make any difference then? Just, you know... Well, I don't know. I mean, I think we are coming to some sort of crunch here. I really do. Mm. Um, uh, not least because the, the weather's so cold now and um, the movement is much, the, the umbrella movement is much more frag- fragmented than it was. The government is emboldened in using uh, quite, quite hairy and violent methods to clear the streets. I mean, anybody, I mean, unlike the independent police not watchdog. I, I've been vulgar enough to actually go and see what's happening. And I can assure you, this wasn't some kid glove. I, I, I'm talking about the clearance in yes. Moncock. Yeah. This wasn't some kid glove, uh, lovey-dovey affair by any chance. What, was there also bad behaviour on the part of the demonstrators? I would say there was. Yes, definitely. That's what happens in these situations. But, you know, there is a difference between a trained disciplinary force which is armed, and an untrained group of citizens who are not under, you know, who are not trained for these things. So, you know, I think that needs to be recognised. Certainly, uh, flying around the world, there have been some quite striking pictures of some of the more violent uh, parts of the of the clearance of Mong Kok, not to mention, you know, the other parts of the protest over the past couple of months. Uh, one which I saw uh, only yesterday was it was a guy who was unconscious on the ground being sort of aimed at with one of these metal batons. Yeah, um, metal What do you think batons. the world reckons to all this? Well, I tell you what, if you look at the Hong Kong's so-called leaders, particularly incidentally John Jung, the financial secretary, who seems to have assumed the mantle of, of Gloomster-in-Chief, <laughs> he, he doesn't spare any opportunity to get up and say, this is damaging to Hong Kong's reputation. My experience, and I've been doing quite a lot of broadcasting for international stations in the last few weeks, is there's an enormous level of admiration for Hong Kong people, not for the Hong Kong government. Mm. So you have to balance that. I'll tell you what, we'll talk some more about that. Plus, I'd like to know uh, if you've got any thoughts on the impact around uh, our part of the world, you know, for example, Taiwan and Macau. We'll be back shortly. Of course, as usual, on a Thursday, Steve Vines in the studio. Uh, talking, obviously, uh, because there's a lot happening this past week uh, about the pro-democracy movement, about the uh, Occupy Central, the umbrella movement, call it what you like. Steve, uh, we did touch briefly the impact on places, OK, Tibet and Xinjiang maybe is a little bit uh, remote uh, from where we are now, but certainly not Taiwan and Macau. Macau, of course, has had uh, big events, and likewise Taiwan. Well, let's just start with Macau, because I think people have... have uh, Macau is so easily overlooked, Um but, you know, there's only two special administrative regions in China, and Macau is the other one. Mm. They've been looking at what's happening in Hong Kong. And this has resulted in the um, government having the biggest shake-up that it's ever had. And apparently, and I don't claim for one moment to be an expert in Macau politics, but, but from what I read, this was very much motivated by a concern that um, Macau might start experiencing the sort of 
protests that Hong Kong has experienced. I mean, there isn't a history of that, but never mind. They're worried about that. They they were worried that, that a same same new government would would excite the interest of the populists and make them more likely to demonstrate. So they've had this very big shake-up. It's not as though they've brought a whole lot of Democrats into the government or anything farcical like that. Gosh, gosh, no, we're not going to have that in Macau. We've got gambling. Um, but they have brought in many new faces, notably many younger faces, and I suppose the leadership there thinks that this is their way of dealing with it. Mm. If you turn to Taiwan, much more interesting... At the elections, and remember, these were mayoral elections and, and, and district elections. They weren't the national elections. But in Taiwan, there was this enormous defeat for the ruling Kuomintang. And why was there an enormous defeat for that party? Well, all the people who like to explain away the attractions of, of the democratic movement say, oh, it's all to do with the economics. None of this has anything to do with politics, uh, you know. <laughs> The thought that elections should have anything to do with politics. Gosh, whoever thought that? <laughs> um, and it's all to do with that. But, but they should actually listen to what people in Taiwan are saying. Mm. First of all, the coverage of what's happening in Hong Kong has been enormous in Taiwan. People are very acutely aware of it. They're also acutely aware of the fact that the whole one country, two systems concept was in fact developed for Taiwan. It wasn't right. developed for Hong Kong. And they're saying to the Kuomintang, you know... You want to cosy up with China. You want to, to, to force greater integration. Look what's happening in Hong Kong with one country, two systems. We don't like it. We don't like the smell of it. We don't like the outcome of it. And we're going to give you a very nasty rap on the knuckles. You can't disguise the extent to which this has been a setback for, for the party, the ruling party. Um, the fact that, that Ma Ying-jeou, the, the president, has had to resign as chairman of, of the Kuomintang tells you, if nothing else does, that, that he himself understands the enormity of this defeat. Mm. But it is mainly, if you listen to what people in Taiwan say, it is mainly a reaction against this greater closeness in cross-straits relations that has been foisted on the people by the ruling party. Now, whether there would have been a reaction against that, with or without what was happening in Hong Kong is debatable, but you have to deal with the facts as they are. Mm. This did happen in Hong Kong. It did have a big impact on the consciousness of people in Taiwan. And, you know, if, if they want to make the argument that this is all to do with, you know, pocketbook economic concerns, well, good luck. Good luck with that. Carry on. If you want to keep your head buried in the sand, it's, it's going to be a fine place. The problem with that is the longer you keep your head buried in the sand, you, you stop breathing. Yeah, you stop breathing and you, and you miss the world that's gone yeah, above you. Yeah, and above your sand ass, in the eyes <laughs> is, not, is not that pleasant, I'm just saying. <laughs> Interestingly enough, um, I was in Admiralty, and I don't know if you're aware or not, but there's a very good cutout of Xi Jinping yes. with, the, with the yellow with the umbrella. With the umbrella, yes. Uh, when I say good, there's one in Mongkok as well, but Mongkok's got some white yeah, bordering yeah. around it. So I went and stood next to this with my arm round the... Yes. the You're not the, the first figure. person no, to have done no. that, I would but, say. But this is yes. the funny bit. I sent it to somebody I know on the mainland, and they yes. said, oh, you know Xi Jinping. <laughs> so the, the reason I'm bringing this up is, obviously, you know, talking about the head in the sand, I mean, Beijing has to have its head in the sand to a certain extent in believing that these kind of pictures and the other 
side of the of this you know the real side of the story that's not being shared by cctv1 and everybody else you know these are being leaked into the mainland aren't they and they must be scared of of you know trouble sort of escalating in yes. other parts i mean you know this is always the fear of dictatorships is that 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 you know uh, uh, um, as marty tung famously said you know it takes a little flame to start a forest mm -hmm. fire so yes they're very aware i mean you mentioned previously you know they're they're, they're always very, very concerned about the non-Han areas of China, like Xinjiang and Tibet, where, you know, you do indeed have full-blown separatist movements. I want to stress the Hong Kong movement is not a separatist movement, mm. although, again, you have... There have been elements in there. You, you have very small elements of, of mm. lunatics who, who are advocating that, but, you know, good luck to them with that. But, but the fact of the matter is that this is why there's been this blanket suppression of news about what's going on in Hong Kong. But the real question, which I can't answer, and I don't think anybody honestly can who is not inside the Politburo of the Chinese Communist Party, and that's not many people, is how much really does the leadership know? I mean, the problem is they get reports from Hong Kong, from Lan Zhongying, from the usual suspects. And as far as one knows, and all the evidence points in this direction, those reports are modelled to tell the leadership what they want to hear, not what's actually happening. Yes, comrades, everything is going well here. Yes, comrades, most people don't really want democracy. Yes, comrades, the main thing is most people in Hong Kong are gagging for more in integration with the mainland. Gosh, none of these people, except for the foreign influence people, and goodness knows, <laughs> we know all about them, blah, blah, blah. So you get all of that being funneled up there they have and it's very clear now an increasing number of people on the ground of their own sent across the border i was about to say that uh, you know whatever cyclops sends to beijing um is not necessarily the truth and, and i think it would be naive of us to, to to think for one moment that they don't have their own well people. they do they do and uh, the anecdotal and other evidence about this is now so strong mm. and it seems to be very extensive and of course they have their own direct contacts within parts of the community. The problem that they have is that those, because of the polarisation of Hong Kong society, they used to have quite good contacts with parts of the democratic camp. My understanding is that those have more or less been cut off. So they're mainly talking to people who are anyway sympathetic to them. And yet again, how honest a picture are they going to get from them? What do their own people on the ground feel about that? That's what I would be fascinated mm. to know. I mean, you know now, uh, uh, and it, it's slightly dangerous to do this, but I'll do it anyway. You know now that, that they had a brief moment when all the, the Soviet archives opened up, that um, even when they had people on the ground going into places, you know, parts of the Soviet empire like mm. Poland and what have you, they were all too terrified to tell the leadership in Moscow that, that the people really didn't like the Russians and etc. etc. So you know that happened in that dictatorship. You know from fascinating uh, work um, done on the Chinese archives during the, the Great Famine, for example, you know there's the, the myth is put about that Mao Zedong didn't know that in fact the whole country was starving, but in fact the archives tell you an entirely different story and of course the world is a different place then i mean we have communication now which is instant well, isn't it? There, there's certainly that mm. but even then you know no internet 
barely no typewriters. I mean, a lot of this stuff was handwritten by the cadres out in, in the various provinces, reporting back, you know, this village is completely devastated by starvation. That town is got barely a person working. At the, you know, all of this information. But apparently... The leadership said, well, we're not interested in all that. We, we've got other information that tells us everything's all right. So what's happening now vis-a-vis -vis Hong Kong and Beijing? First of all, let's be realistic. Hong Kong is not at the top of the priority list that Xi Jinping is carrying around in his side pocket. I think it's quite up there somewhere on his list, but it's not at the top of the list. He has, as Obama pointed out yesterday, rather surprisingly in my view, he has moved far quicker than any other leader in recent Chinese history to establish his central prominence in the system. So it's quite clear that there isn't some sort of secondary person who, who's going to, you know... Um, take the lead on this. This will have to come from, from uh, Xi Jinping himself. So, I don't know. I have no idea what real information he's getting or what real information he wants to believe. If he really just wants to believe what he wants to believe, all is lost. It really is. Of course, the, the biggest thing that hangs over this entire uh, situation is that you know these uh, Occupy protesters, the Umbrella Movement, and everybody else uh, in that uh, camp, if you want, they're all hanging on one belief, and that is that ultimately the Joint Declaration will play a part. And if, the, if if China doesn't follow this Joint Declaration, then their old mates in the UK and around the world are all going to jump in and uh, ensure it happens. But uh, yesterday, unless I'm sadly mistaken, or perhaps otherwise. Didn't they say it was void? Well, the, the foreign ministry spokesman said it's void. Uh, extraordinary state. Uh, incidentally, just, just before we go to that, yeah. I'm not sure they're quite naive enough to think that Britain will ride to the rescue. No, well, they but, obviously but they aren't. Do, uh, the MPs think, can't even get here. So. Well, they, they, I mean, you know, this is extraordinary. Uh, British people don't need a visa to come to Hong Kong. Mm. But, but apparently, <laughs> and in the basic law, it, the, 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 the issue of visas is under the purview of the Hong Kong government. But this has all been sort of cast aside with Beijing saying, well, we don't care whether you don't need a visa or not, you're not going to get one. Anyway, that, that, that's, but, but, but let's look at this. To say that an international treaty registered at the United Nations, which is what the Joint Declaration is, mm. Mm. is void, is void? Now, how can that be? I mean, one of the things which, of course, the Chinese side doesn't like about the Joint Declaration is it did, in the Declaration, give Britain a continuing role in working with the Chinese authorities for the future of Hong Kong. That was why um, the Joint Liaison Committee was, or Joint Liaison Group, to give it its correct name, was set up, which consists of equal numbers, consisted, it doesn't function at the, at the moment, of equal numbers of... British and Chinese representatives. That was still in operation after 1997. And it was quite clear that in the 50-year transition period, which we're now in, yeah. um, Britain did have um, a responsibility for working with the Chinese authorities to ensure the future prosperity of Hong Kong, etc., etc. Well, that was all very well, as long as Britain just said, well done, great job, boys. We like, <laughs> we like the cut of your jib. You know, the British Parliament, um, through the Foreign Office, sees a biannual report on progress of the Joint Declaration. This has never been a controversial document until now.
So, you know, you can't have it both ways. You can't say we willingly sign an international treaty and we suddenly abrogate it. Uh, just to uh, jump in here, I've got a, an email from Archie. Uh, I haven't had a chance to scan through it because we're chatting here, but I'll just read on what he says. I'd like to hear Steve Vine's take on this. A couple of days back, I emailed a simple solution to Backchat. Now, another simple solution comes to mind. No sacrifice, no gain. So something from protests during my college days comes to mind. To protests, we just didn't attend classes and the professors were left teaching to the empty walls. Of course, the police weren't involved as there was no violence or blockages or sit-ins. It was something akin to the... Gandhian way, if students could do this, not attend classes and let the schools be almost empty. Then he jumps to shopkeepers are badly affected, very true, but if not all, some of them would be in sympathy with the protesters. They're already losing money, so if they decide to lose some more to show sympathy, they could close their shops. That may arouse more sympathy from other non-sympathetic shops, officers and other businesses, and if this has a snowball effect, Hong Kong will become a ghost town. And finally, he says, let us see if the PLA or Hong Kong police will come in and force them to open shops and schools and colleges. That's from Archie. Gosh, that's a bit... I'm a bit confused by some of that. I understand what he's saying, but I honestly think things have moved on. Um, I... I embarrassed to say I was a, a student protester myself and I have experience of um, boycotting classes and that did indeed change civilization as we know it brackets not <laughs> it seemed so at the time that's all I'll say in my defense but I have to say it didn't make any difference whatsoever and I think in Hong Kong the level of protests and the way the movements developed that that may have been an option I don't think it's an option now and I think the, the, the fact of the matter is that um, there has to be... I mean, everybody says this. This is nothing original on my part. That, you know, if you, if you start a protest movement, not only do you have to have a direction, but you have to have a tactical exit strategy. And I, I'm sorry to repeat what I've said on this programme before, but I think the exit strategy at the moment is actually quite simple, is that the protesters themselves say on, where are we now, 3rd of December, on 10th of December, I don't know, 4th of December, whatever date it is, and this is arbitrary, we will, we will ask everybody who supports um, genuine democracy in Hong Kong to gather in Admiralty and we will march out together, we will not be removed, we will clean up the area, we will go, but we'll come back and we will preserve the movement. At the moment, it's the main, main likelihood is that it will just disintegrate and disintegrate and, and sort of chip away to nothing. Or, as Archie says, you know, maybe there will be a very violent uh, end to it with the police coming in, cracking a few heads open. Well, maybe even the PLA. Those. Do you actually, in reality, <coughs> see the PLA marching down Nathan Road as everybody's been fearing since even, 1997? Even the least informed member of the Politburo in Beijing does appreciate that would be an enormous step. Mm. And the reason it would, besides anything else, besides anything else, would be the extraordinary transparent way in which they would have to do that. I mean, it's all very well to send... Well, I shouldn't say this, but you can say... It's all very well to send the PLA 
or, or the People's Armed Police to uh, crack heads open in Xinjiang and Tibet where communications are poor, certainly where the international media is not assembled. It's a very different thing to do it in Hong Kong. But there have been suggestions by uh, some photos of what they've seen around Admiralty a, a few weeks back that the police, uh, you know, the armed police were actually here. Oh, I think... Uh, in I, plain I, clothes. I, I, uh, yeah, people have been pointed out to me in the crowd. They mm. say that guy. Mm. And, you know, somebody to- talking with a strong... <laughs> sort of accent t- does tend to suggest. Uh, um, but, but that's rather different from sending a battalion um, with tear gas or or with, with with even more lethal weaponry into the crowd and dispersing it in the way that would happen, as I say, in places like well, not only not only Xinjiang and Tibet, other places inside China, the the they have <laughs> dealt with demonstrations in a far far more violent manner than anything has happened here. So you know, I I think the police have been undermined by poor leadership in the Hong Kong situation and and undermined by the political way in which they've been deployed. But I do think that, on the whole, the police don't come out of this badly. Well, let's see how these next few weeks evolve. Uh, As always, Steve, it's a pleasure talking to you. It's one part of the show that I've enjoyed doing when uh, Phil Whelan disappears. So uh, until next time, Steve Vines, thank you so 